Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. Okay, let's get into God's Word together, and I'm going to read Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 20. This is the passage that we're going to be looking at today. And then we're going to go from there. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 20. It'll be on the side screens. And then um, we will dive into it from there. This is what God's word says. Finally, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one. Take on, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Bring at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert Keep watching with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And then Paul shares with us his own circumstances. He says, pray also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You know, by way of illustration, as I was thinking about this passage, there's so much to say. And last week, if you were with us, we talked about the aim of evil. What is the enemy aiming for in your life? What is he after? Where is he going to strike? If he has a target on you or a bullseye on your life, what's he going for? When's he going to strike? How's he going to attack? Because if we know the schemes and the plan of the enemy then we can be prepared for it. We can stand against those. And so if you missed last week, I encourage you, it's on our YouTube page. You can check it out online or our podcast if that's how you prefer to listen to it. But it's so important that we understand and see what he's up to and what he's going after. And what what we looked at is simply this. Evil aims for the largest return on investment. So it goes after things like our marriages, our families, our kids, our relationships. It goes after our hearts, the deepest desires of our hearts. And in order to stand against the schemes of the enemy, God says, you need armor. You need something from heaven that I want to give you, and it's the only way you're going to stand when the enemy comes against you. But I I've provided it for you. That's good news. And and here's what I want us to see. You see, the reason the Apostle Paul in his letter to Ephesus, the reason 
he said, I'm going to close the crescendo of this letter, this vastly important letter to the church in Ephesus. I'm going to sum it all up with a metaphor, with an analogy of armor. And the reason he chose the metaphor of armor is to show us what's at stake is to show us the reality, spiritually speaking, of what's on the line. What we're up against, how serious it is. I'll never forget when I was in high school, the very first time I, uh, I played paintball with some of my buddies. Anybody played paintball before? Yeah. Uh, that first time, you, you learn something real quick. <laughs> Real fast, day one. There are two types of people in the world, okay? There are those people like me and my buddies who randomly on a Saturday afternoon in high school, we decide, hey, we got nothing else to do. Let's uh, go play paintball. Sounds fun. Let's do it. So we show up with nothing except cut off t-shirts and like shorts and some shoes. And we literally have to rent or, you know, buy everything at the paintball shop. So whether it's the paintball gun or the helmet goggle thing or whatever, you know, the paintballs themselves, we show up completely unprepared and we just use whatever they have. And then there are other people in the world. And these people, they take it serious, okay? You see, paintball is life for these people. These are people who believe deep in their souls that their identity and value as a human in life is determined by the number of people they destroy that day on the paintball course. And those people look something like this, okay? Full-on camo, ghillie suits, customized guns. They've got customized helmets and armor. And somehow, I don't know how, but somehow these people find each other in life. I don't know if it's like, I see it in your eyes from across the room, man. Yep, we're on the same page. See you Saturday. You want to be on my team? And they form squads that look like this. And they have matching camo outfits and armor. And, you know, one guy has like a sniper extension on his custom barrel. And one dude's about to do parkour as he like army crawls his way over to where... He's going to flank you on the left side and you never see him coming. And I don't know if that's like a, a paintball grenade on his back or what. But I'll never forget, we show up the first day and me and my crew, this, this about sums us up, okay? This is like, <laughs> this is our level of preparedness and just like, yeah, let's go play some paintball. We had no clue what we were up against or what we were in for on that day and in that moment. And we were playing. They set us up to play this game. It was capture the flag, paintball style. So you have to get the enemy's flag without getting shot by a paintball, and they have to do the same to you. And you both have to start in the middle of your side of the course. And, you know, each side, this was a pretty legit paintball place. Each side had a 20-foot deer stand that was like a sniper tower or something. And uh, there were tons of, like, hay bales and wooden walls and tubes you could crawl through or whatever. And I'll never forget, as soon as the air horn blew, me and my buddies are kind of like, man, they look, ser you know, they look serious over there. They're all huddled up. They've got a master strategy. As soon as the air horn was like, Meh, one guy sprints to the sniper tower, 
three different teams split in different directions, like covering each other to flank us on both sides. And then two of them just start sprinting right at us, unloading, okay? Me and my buddies are like, all right, it's full sin. Let's just go for the flag. We're dead anyways. This game was over before it ever began. We have no shot at winning this. And I don't know, within a few minutes, either the sniper in the tower or somebody else on their team had killed all of us and our flag was taken. Two types of people in this world. Be prepared if you show up at a, at a paintball field. You may have a crew like that against you. But here's what I want us to see, and there was a quote that I came across that captured this so well. Friends, when Paul closes his letter, when the crescendo of his letter, when he says, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, and then he goes into this analogy of the armor of God, he's saying, friends, Christians, believers, understand this. When you put your faith in Jesus, the enemy is coming against you, and he's all in. He's not messing around. He's going full sin to capture your flag and to take out your life. And you need to be prepared for this. Charles Hodge, he was just an amazing preacher about 100 years ago in Great Britain. And he said this about the armor of God and this whole passage. And we'll have his quote on the side screen here. He says this, Therefore... Whoever rushes into this conflict, into this battle of the Christian life without thinking of Christ, without putting his trust in him, without continually looking to him for strength and regarding himself as a member of his body, deriving all life and vigor or strength from him, is delusional. If you're rushing headlong onto that paintball field and you are not prepared for this battle, you're delusional. He says this, he does not know what he is doing. He will be destroyed before reaching the field of battle. With such a person, the whole conflict is a sham. And friends, what we realize in the Western world, we are very aware when, when the first epistle, 1 John, the first epistle of John, that he writes when he says, hey, there are three enemies that try to sabotage your soul the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're very aware of the world, the cultural influences that come against us as Christians. I mean, let's just be honest. There's not much in the world, in the culture around us, that is pointing people towards salvation in Jesus Christ. Not much by way of marketing or by way of cultural trends or by way of anything you see in the world around you that is saying, you need a savior. You need God in your life. Not much. In fact, the tide is going the other direction. Amen, somebody. It's pushing us away from God. It's, it's blinding us to our need of God. It's saying, you are your own God. You are your own truth. You are everything you need, which is the opposite of the gospel. So the world we are very aware of, the ways that the, the different aspects of our culture are, are trending and pulling away from God, um, and we're very aware of our flesh, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. We're very aware of our own tendencies, our own brokenness, the own parts of our, 
the parts of our own heart and our own life where when we wake up in the morning, we are faced with the same battles, the same temptations, the same trials. We're very aware of those two things because we feel them and they're around us. They're in our face every day. But the third one, the spiritual aspect of this that Paul is getting into when 1 John writes, the world, the flesh, and the devil, Paul says, I want to call your attention to something. You see, you don't just wrestle against flesh and blood. You are actually a part of a spiritual battle, whether you realize it or not. There is an enemy of your soul. And yes, he uses the world around us. Yes, he, he will leverage the temptations that you were born with. Yes, he will do all those things. But there are also moments where you may be caught up in spiritual warfare of some type and you're not even aware. And that's just how he likes it. He likes to move and work in our lives under the radar. And so last week we looked at the aim of evil, but this week we, I really want to draw our attention to when you know if, if the enemy, if it's more than just the flesh and the world around you, but if you are under spiritual attack and what that looks and sounds like, and then I want us to look at God's solution for that and how we can actually stand in the strength of God, how we can live in the strength of God, how we can draw strength from God. And the title of my message this week, if you're, if you're taking notes or writing this down, is simply this. We're looking at the armor of God, part two, and the title is this, Armed with Victory. Armed with Victory, and how God has actually clothed us, clothed us and armed us with his own victory, his own strength. So there's three things we're going to look at as we dive into this, three topics as we unpack this passage of scripture. The armor of God, I, I want us to see, number one, the stakes are high. That's why Paul talks about armor. Number two, I want us to see that he talks about each part as being vital and necessary. You see, when Paul says, put on the armor of God, he doesn't say, uh, yeah, just take up the shield today. Or just put on the breastplate, you'll be fine. Put on the helmet, you'll make it through. No, he says, put on the whole armor of God. All of it. It comes as a unit. All pieces are important. Equally, you need all of them. They're available, and you need to be clothed in them every day. So each part is necessary. But number three, here's, here's the kicker. We have to pick it up and put it on. It's available to you. The strength and the victory that God has won through Jesus Christ on the cross is freely available to you. You just need your eyes to be open to see it, and then you got to pick it up and put it on. It's at your disposal. The question is, will you use it? I love what N.T. Wright says. He says, I, I mentioned this last week too. He said, it's one thing to know about the strength of God. It's another thing entirely to stand in the strength of his might. So one thing to know about it intellectually, yeah, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It's another thing entirely to believe what Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 when he said, I pray that you would know 
deep in your soul the immeasurable greatness of his power toward you, the power that lives in you. And he says, the very same power, the very same might that took dead Jesus from the grave and raised him to new life, never to die again, is in you. And Paul says, hey, it's one thing to know about it. It's another thing to stand in the strength of that might. What does it mean for us to stand in the strength of that might? What does it mean to have access to the might and the power of God? To be prepared for the battle in front of us, not to step onto the, uh, the paintball field unprepared. Well, let's look at Paul's answer. He goes, okay, you want to access the strength of God? You want to live this way? You want to live in what God has made freely available to you? Here's the metaphor. Here's how you do it. This is what we just read. Therefore, stand in the strength of his might that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, in order to do this, take up what? The whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So he starts here, right? He starts with this reality of truth and righteousness. Every piece of the armor of God correlates to a very important word, to a very important reality that Paul wants you to live in, that Paul wants you to know you have access to this and it can change your life. It can protect you from the schemes of the devil. It can give you strength to live and to make it through. And I thought about this. I said, you know, really at the end of the day, if you think about it, one of the primary attacks, one of the primary schemes of the enemy is found in John 8, verse 44 to 45. It says, he, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth. He doesn't stand in the truth. He's a liar and the father of lies. And so if we're going to withstand the enemy in the evil day or when he comes against us, we have to be aware of what he's up to. We have to be aware of the lies that he is bringing our way. And I thought about this because I thought, man, how, how does he work? How, how can we see or know if we're in the midst of spiritual warfare? If it's not just the world or the flesh, but it's actually the enemy of our souls coming against us. And I thought, man, there's two primary passages in the Bible where Satan has direct contact either with humans or with Jesus himself. There's a few other passages, but there's some really extended passages where you see the way that he lies and interacts with people. And the first one we're all familiar with, Genesis 3 when he shows up in the form of a serpent to deceive Adam and Eve in the garden. But then he shows up again. So he shows up in the very beginning of the Bible 
which gives us the context for the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, it gives us the context of our need for a Savior right there in Genesis 3. But then he shows up again. Where? The temptation of Jesus right at the beginning of the New Testament. And here's what's fascinating to me if you look at this. Think about this. Adam and Eve failed the test. As soon as Jesus was baptized and declared to be the Son of God by God himself, he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he has to pass the test that Adam and Eve failed. And when you compare the temptation of Adam and Eve and the temptation of Jesus, ooh, they are so parallel. Reminds me of like a pickpocket. Saw this fascinating video on YouTube recently about how pickpockets work. And it was, it was featured in the New Yorker. It was on their, their New Yorker YouTube page. And they basically brought in a magician whose primary act is he'll stand in front of an audience, an auditorium of people. He'll call someone up from the crowd. He'll have that person stand in front of him and he'll put a 90-second timer on the TV or on the screens and he'll look at that person in front of everyone and he'll say, within 90 seconds, I'm going to steal your watch. Within 90 seconds, I'm going to steal the watch off your wrist. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm that guy, I'm like, good luck, not a chance, because what am I doing now for the next 90 seconds? I am not taking my eyes off that watch. There is no way I'm going to let him steal the watch off my wrist in front of this crowd of people. Not a chance, buddy. Give it your best shot. So he has a couple different ways that he starts off his act, but eventually he shakes the hand where the watch is resting on the other person. And now you're like, okay, now I'm dialed in. His hand is close to the watch. I'm watching you, man. I'm watching the clock, too. It's counting down, but I'm not going to let you take it off my hand. And he's talking to this gentleman, and he goes, you know what's funny? Is he says, you thought I was after the watch, but he goes, really, I was after your phone. Is this your phone? Or is this your wallet? Or is this whatever the other thing was in his other pockets? And he pulls out the wallet or the phone with his other hand. And what does the guy do? He immediately takes his eyes off the watch and he begins to like feel his jacket pocket. And in that moment, this magician, this pickpocket, he turns his hand over. He's already unclasped with one hand the watch that was on his wrist. He turns it over, slides up next to it, and the watch falls into his pocket. And then he just steps back to normal. And the guy's like, man, how'd you get my, my wallet? I was so focused. Where's my watch? And he's like, oh, you mean this watch? And then he's like, what about your wedding ring? I took that too on the way out. He robbed him blind. And you look at Satan, right? You look at this, this crazy story in the beginning of Genesis, and what the enemy does is he gets you so focused on what you might be missing out on, what you might lose, that he ends up taking everything else in your life and that thing as well. Think about this. Genesis 2.9 says this. Amazing, amazing graciousness of God. Out of the ground, the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant 
to the site and good for food. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as well. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden, verse 15, of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. And so he makes Eve. And so not only does God give Adam this amazing paradise called Eden with any fruit or food he could ever desire, every, every fruit that was desired by Adam was available to Adam. The generosity of God. And then he gives him a partner, someone to share it all with, someone to love and to have intimacy with. He goes above and beyond. He doesn't just put him alone in the garden, he brings Eve. And he says, this is all yours to enjoy. And there's two trees in the middle of the garden. There's a tree of life, which you don't even need that one. You're already gonna live forever. You don't need to eat the fruit of that one, but be careful of the other tree in the middle of the garden. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right now, your mind, your heart, your soul, your spirit, it's only attuned to the goodness of God. It's only attuned to righteousness and life and, and the goodness of God. If you eat or touch that tree, you're gonna die. So look, I've given you everything. Just make sure you don't touch that one. It can kill you. Fair deal. I don't want to die. Okay, thank you, Lord, for this entire garden. Thank you for eternal life that you've already given me. There was no death before that moment. And then Satan shows up. Genesis 3, verse 1, he said to the woman, did God actually say, did, he, did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You catch it? He said the exact opposite of what God said. God goes, take your pick, eat them all. They're amazing, except for that one. Be careful, it'll kill you. Seems reasonable enough, God. I don't want the one that'll kill me either. Thank you for letting me know. Thanks for the heads up. I'll stay away from that tree. Satan shows up. Gosh, God is stingy. He's holding out on you. He put you in the middle of this garden and he told you, you can't eat any of this. Look how good it all looks. Mm, did God actually say you can't? He did. What kind of, who would say that? He puts you in the middle of this beautiful garden and says you can't eat any of the trees. And Eve's like, well, what? No, that, that's not what he, did he say? No, he didn't say that. No, what God said was, uh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Oh yeah, he said we could eat any of them. He just said, uh, but he said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Yep, that's what God said. He said we could actually eat all of them except that one, it'll kill us. And then the serpent responds again, you will not surely die. The exact opposite. So first off, he exaggerates the command of God. God says, eat them all except that one, he expands that command to don't eat any of it. I just want your life to be miserable, which is what religion does. Hello. It takes 
one command and builds a whole list of rules around it and says, if you want to follow God, you better check off this huge list. God's a very prohibitive God and says no to everything and puts you in this world and just wants you to be miserable. Religion gets people focused on the prohibitions, the, the don'ts, while God says, do you realize what I've given you? Do you realize what you have in Christ? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, life, everlasting grace, mercy, purpose, joy, peace, forgiveness. And yes, there are a few forbidden trees that I'm telling you, don't touch those, they'll kill you. But would you please look at all I've given you? I'm a generous father. And the evil enemy, Satan, comes along and he's like, oh, so many rules those Christians have whole bunch of forbidden fruit that you're not allowed to touch. It's like, no, can you just see the goodness of God? And the reason behind it is it will kill you. The serpent said, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like him. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate she also gave some to her husband who was with her the whole time, and he ate. Friends, you fast forward into Matthew, and I saw something that I've never seen before in that passage. Unbelievable. You see, Matthew 4 is where the temptation of Jesus begins. But right before Matthew 4, this is sometimes why the chapter breaks in the Bible can actually be a little bit difficult and throw you off from what's actually happening because right before Matthew 4 is Matthew 3. That makes sense, Pastor. Praise God. And in the very end of Matthew 3, so there's no chapter or verses in the original Greek, right? It says, Matthew 3, 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. I love him. He's me in the flesh and he's my son. And somehow this is a mystery. We are three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my son. And in the spirit, chapter four, verse one, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Come on, somebody. 40 days is a long time. He was hungry. Of course, the tempter came and said to him, what? Do you see that? Look what he said. If you are the son of God, what did God just say? I've given you all the trees of the garden to eat. You are my beloved son. If you're really the son of God, why don't you turn one of those rocks into bread so you can satisfy your hunger? If you really are deity, if you're really the Messiah, if you are who he says you are, why don't you turn the rocks into bread? You know what's funny? This is wild. Just a few chapters later in Matthew, what does Jesus actually do? He creates bread. He feeds 
5,000 people with bread that he created from, I don't know, a few loaves. So he had the ability to do that, to sustain himself, to feed himself. He had the ability to circumvent the plan of God, just like Eve in that moment said, man, I can sustain myself. I don't need God. I can be like God. I can know what God knows. I can, I can provide for myself. And Jesus responds to him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. No, Satan, I need God. So the enemy comes along, and the reason Paul starts off the armor with the belt of truth is because our enemy is the father of lies. And what he wants you to believe is that God does not have your best interest in mind. He wants to get you focused on the watch while he steals and robs you blind and then takes the watch in the process. He's a master at misdirection. He's a master at distorting what God actually says and getting you to fall for lies and getting you to believe that things that your heart desires or the world tells you will be good for you or if you just arrive at this level or you just have this or that, if your marriage just looked like their marriage, if your kids just you know, acted like their kids, he, he gets you into this trap of comparison. He pulls you into these narratives of anxiety and fear. He gets you into patterns of defeat by making the same old moves again in your life and you have no truth to stand on. You've bought hook, line, and sinker into his lies and Paul says the very first thing you have to stand on is truth, the truth of who Jesus is, the truth that you are a beloved son or daughter, the truth that God came to earth and died for your sins on a cross. The truth of God's word. You see, truth is not subjective. There is one objective reality in the world. It's found in the word of God. And it's spoken through the mouth of God in Jesus Christ. And anything in our lives that doesn't line up with that truth is deceiving us and trying to tempt us to eat forbidden fruit. And not because... God is stingy or angry or mean. He's gracious. He's given us all things in Christ. Simply because God says, I don't want you to die. It's bad for you. Moving on in Ephesians. He says, I want you to fasten the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, what could be more important than the breastplate of righteousness? Do you know what? Righteousness is, it's what you are not. <laughs> I love you, I promise, I'm not either. We're broken, we're not perfect. Righteousness is perfection. It's making the right choices all the time. It's always loving others and preferring others and loving God first. It's always obeying God in every moment. Friends, we are not righteous, no, not one. So the book of Romans says, we're broken, we're fallen, we are, man, we have messy past. We have a messy present. We're probably going to make some mistakes in the future. Come on, somebody. We are not perfect. And what God says is you need my armor because the enemy is not just a liar. He's an accuser. And he's going to come whispering in your ears and he's going to say, you're never 
going to break that cycle in your life or in your family. You remember, you remember what you did a few years back? Yeah, you've ruined it forever now. Your reputation is tarnished forever. You'll never save your marriage. You'll never save your family. You'll never save that friendship. It's done. It's over. It's broken forever. He begins to accuse you, to whisper lies. You'll always be a failure. You're nothing. You're less than nothing. The voice of accusation, friends, it's not just your own thoughts in your head. Oftentimes, that is the, the voice of the enemy. And what you need in that moment is a breastplate of righteousness because shame and condemnation, they attack the heart. And what you need in that moment is not your own righteousness because you have made mistakes and you have failed. You need the righteousness that comes from God, the armor of God, the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Friends, when you put your faith in Jesus for the first time, God looks at you not according to your mistakes, not according to your failures, not according to your shortcomings, your brokenness, your tendencies, your addictions, your habits. He looks at you through the lens of Jesus and he goes, yep, you're in process, but you're perfect. His righteousness is now yours. His life is now yours. That's the whole point of him dying on a cross for your sins so that his holiness and righteousness could now be available to you. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. He goes on. He says, as shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. The shoes fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. I love this because shoes, what do shoes speak of? They speak of movement, where you're heading. They speak of your purpose. You see, friends, what we're looking for in this life, if you want to stand in the strength of God and the might of his power, you have to walk according to his purpose. He wants to give you meaning, purpose, and direction for your life. And that's what these shoes represent. The shoes of the gospel means it doesn't matter what you do. In the sense of your work or your occupation, it doesn't matter you know, how high up you are in your organization or if you're just starting out. What matters is, are you doing it for the glory of God? What matters is, have you connected your work? Have you connected your life? Have you connected the way that you're raising your family, the way you're spending your money, the way you're spending your time? Have you connected that to the greater meaning and purpose of your life, which is only found through the gospel of Jesus Christ because everything matters to God. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of Christ, and it's a gospel of peace. We need some peace right now in the world. Come on, somebody. We need some peace in our own lives. I'm giving you, says the Lord, all you need. I'm giving you truth so you can see the lies that are leading you to death. I'm giving you a righteousness that is a free gift from God so that your past and your present mistakes don't define you. I'm giving you peace for your anxious, weary soul. And now I'm asking you, take up the shield of faith. Faith, friends, is a gift from God to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. All the attacks on your life, on your family, on your marriage, on your heart, all the temptations that come your way, whether you wake up in the morning or whether you're heading to bed at night, whatever those may be, 
Faith is, is by that by which we stand and walk. And, and the shield, what I love about the picture of the shield is it can move. It's the first line of defense. Darts coming from the left, I can put my faith up over there. If it's coming straight on, I can put my faith up in front of me. If it's coming from this direction, I can turn and extinguish it with faith. You see, faith is the doorway into grace. It's the doorway into salvation, into mercy, forgiveness, everything. And so faith is the very thing that is the front line of defense for us. If you want to stand in the might and the strength of God, he goes on, and I love it, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. I'm coming down the, the home stretch here, so if the band wants to come out, we'll close with this. Friends, do you know what salvation is? It's just God's victory. God wins. He beats death. He beats sin. He beats Satan. He beats it all. Salvation means God's victory. He saved you and I from everything that has ever come against us. And ultimately, right now, we experience salvation in a spiritual sense. Freedom of the heart. Resurrection of the heart. But there's a day coming when God will make all things new, a new heavens and a new earth. Put on the helmet of salvation. I love that he protects the most vital organs, the, the head and the heart, with a helmet and with a breastplate of righteousness. He says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's the one thing by which I thought about this. Not only do we advance or fight back, Jesus responded to the devil when he tempted him. It is written. Here's what God actually says. You're taking God's word out of context. That's not what God said. Here's what God said. And so every time the accuser comes against you with an accusation from your past, do you have a sword or not? Is your sword like a little butter knife? doesn't give you much clearance. The enemy's just pressing in on all directions and he's not real worried about it because it's not super sharp. Or is it like samurai sword? You know, Braveheart, Mel Gibson, massive two-handed sword. Is it something by which when the enemy attacks, you can swing that sucker and he backs up he doesn't want to come within the circumference of that because he knows if you resist him with the word of God, he will flee. But friends, here's what we can't miss. And I was thinking about this. One of my favorite movies growing up as a kid was Searching for Bobby Fischer. And it's this, it's this amazing movie about chess. And I'll turn the board sideways here. But there's this scene at the very end of the movie where Josh Waitskin, who's this brilliant young chess player, is up against his arch rival. And it looks like his opponent has got him beat. And there's this crazy scene where he remembers, uh, young Josh Waitskin remembers one of the things his coach says to him, and he says, don't move until you see it. Don't move until you see it. Don't move until you see it. And so in his mind, even though he's there at the table against the enemy, his back's against the wall, and, and by, all, by all accounts, he's done, it's over. The game is finished, he's gonna get beat. But in his mind's eye, he sweeps the pieces off the board. 
I mean, literally, if you think of it like this, he sweeps all the pieces off the board. And all he sees left are a few remaining pieces. And I shouldn't have thrown them all on the ground because one of them was the queen, and I don't know where the queen is. Somewhere. We'll pretend like this is the queen. And suddenly he rebuilds the board in his mind, and even though his opponent, before the board was cleared, his opponent clearly had him beat, he was, he was able to see for the first time, wait, there's a road to victory here. In fact, I'm certain of it. I can see it no matter what he does, I've won. The game's over. And he looks across the table at his opponent and he smiles and he goes, you don't know it yet, but you've already lost. The kid looks back at him and he goes, look at the board. He goes, I have, the game's over, I won. He goes, I'll offer you a draw if you want it, but it's over. And the other kid laughs at him and says, move. And what struck me was this, friends, do you understand what the armor of God actually is? The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. Do you know what faith, salvation, gospel, righteousness, spirit, do you know what those things are? They all represent one thing, God's victory in your life. The armor is not just something to defend you from the attacks of the enemy. The armor is God clothing you in his victory. He goes, you just can't see it yet. It feels like your back is against the wall. You just need to clear the deck because some of you have been making the same move and you've been getting killed every day. And you need to stop waking up and looking at your cell phone. You need to stop driving that way home. Some of you need to stop hanging with that crew. Some of you need to make some changes. You need to make some new moves because the enemy's got you backed in the corner. You're so predictable. And literally, I go back to the beginning of Ephesians and say, nothing changes if nothing changes. Make some different moves. And if you can clear the board and see, whoa, that's why he closes the entire passage with, look, pick up the sword of the Spirit, praying at all times, in all circumstances, so that you may be alert with perseverance. So your eyes can be open, you're awake to the schemes of the enemy, but also this, you're awake to the fact, friends, stick with me, that right next to you is a sword called the Bible that God has given you faith to stand against the attacks of the enemy. You have his righteousness, his salvation, his truth, his peace is available to you through the gospel. But you gotta pick it up. In this passage of scripture, there's a bunch of verbs that come back to back to back to back around the armor of God. Paul says, take it up, put it on, fasten it around your waist, Put it on, take it up, take it up. Open your eyes, it's right there. You don't have to keep making the same moves and getting defeated. Clear the board. I want you to see you've already won and I want you to begin moving in step with my spirit. And the only way to do that is to pray in all circumstances at all time, take it to God. Driving down the road, friends, why is prayer so hard for us? I'll admit it. It's my, half the time, it's my last resort. 
Why is it so hard for you to pray and for me to pray? And why is it so hard for us to get in the Word of God? Prayer is the one thing that opens our eyes to the reality of what the enemy is doing and opens our eyes to the victory that we have in Christ. So the enemy says, look, I just got to keep them distracted. I just got to keep them, uh, you know, whenever they sit down to pray, I need to, I need to make sure they don't see immediate results. I want to discourage them in their prayers. Friends, the reason prayer is so difficult for us is because the enemy does not want us to pray. Isn't it the craziest thing? On one level, prayer, right? It doesn't require any special equipment. You don't need a Peloton bike. You don't need a membership. You don't have to go to a special place at a certain time of day to do it. You don't need another person to do it with you. You don't need special training. You don't need to speak out loud or get into a particular position. You can pray sitting in an armchair in your living room, walking down the street, lying on your bed, driving in your car. So why is it so hard? Because there is a battle raging behind the scenes that, may, that wants to make you believe. It's a waste of time. No one's listening. It's not effective. And Paul is saying, the victory of God is available. It's right there. Pray at all times. Be alert. Keep your eyes open to it. The salvation of God is yours. The righteousness of God is yours. The gospel is yours. I've given you faith to overcome every obstacle. I've given you strength. I've given you armor from heaven. It's time to make some new moves clear the board. Remember, you're living and fighting from a place of freedom and victory. You're not fighting for it. It's already yours. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.